All right, tonight we, uh, in earnest, get into our concepts of how to reach the lost, how to do evangelism under the conditions that the Bible describes of the end days. And uh, certainly, simply because of the difficulty of the environment does not excuse us from the responsibility to be witnesses of the gospel. We might excuse somewhat of the outcome being diminished, but it is certain that uh, we are not excused from the responsibility of communicating. In fact, if anything, it is more incumbent upon us to communicate the gospel during this time um, because of the shortness of the hour. I was listening to somebody last night, and or was it night before last? I get my days a little confused. And standing up and, and really in a pseudo-political religious environment, talking about the great revival that is just sweeping all over the world right now. And I had to kind of scrunch up my face a little and say, what are you talking about? Uh, and um, while certainly there's a commitment to Jesus Christ in that meeting, and that that was what they were uh, focusing in on, and certainly sharing the gospel in that context, um, it is not my experience that that is uh, something that is uh, happening. Now, if we want to talk about it as a political movement, perhaps you can say, well, we have this growing political uh, conservatism and uh, maybe some rootedness into a kind of religious Christianity, not really a genuine one that's about a relationship with, with our God through the Lord sacrifice. Perhaps we could talk about that, but that has never produced disciples of Jesus Christ. And whenever we come into times of struggles and hardships, we find many people willing to turn to Christ. We saw it a lot right after the great earthquake in Haiti. They had all these people that were out there hunting voodoo witch doctors because they blamed them for the earthquake. And so they were going to remove that, but now today they're back into voodoo. Uh, we found the churches just filled up to capacity all through the country that are now diminished under attack by violent gangs. And so we see that these kinds of large movements that are divorced from a personal decision for relationship with Jesus Christ are not lasting and they are not effectual in bringing in... in uh, true conversions. And so, um, that does that mean that we should not engage during that time? Well, we certainly should be, but our expectations should be different. That we are not really here to bring about geopolitical change. We're here to bring about something much more substantial than that, of a genuine transformation of individuals uh, from... Uh, those that are not right with God, who even are religious characters, to being those that are genuine followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, did Jesus encounter opposition? Yes. Where was most of Jesus' opposition from? Religious leaders who did not, were not serving God, even though they held the very high positions that would make it appear that they are there, that they are the religious people, that they are the spiritual leaders of Israel. And Jesus himself says to Nicodemus, don't you know this? You're one of the teachers of Israel. And you don't know these spiritual truths. And so uh, we want to distinguish what we're talking about from what, in that case, Mike Lindell was talking about. All right? And so... We, we want to distinguish that because it would be very easy to see, well, all these people running around being Trump supporters and even uh, uh, today, I think, or yesterday, they had the big uh, anti-mandate march on Washington, D.C. Uh, and, oh, that's part of our movement. Well, no, it's not. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the, the transformation of lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that has to happen on an individual basis, and yet it can penetrate communities at a time. And we're not against that. I'm not opposed to that, because that's what happens in the Bible frequently. 
And so you find someone like the Philippian jailer um, who got saved that night. Just him? His whole family, his whole household, which is wider than just his immediate family members, his wife and children, it would have involved probably much, uh, a, a larger group. Cornelius is another example where an entire group of people came to know Christ. Uh, and Cornelius' extended household would have been much bigger than the, than the Philippian jailer. Lydia, her household, we find these households coming to Christ. So we're not opposed to a larger people movement than just the individual, but we recognize that each individual in that people movement have to receive Christ as Savior. That has to be clearly understood. So, one of the conditions that we are really concerned about, and we, I talked about you that we're going to be going through five different categories in this study of how we present the gospel. One, the first one that we're going to really talk about is confronting sin. Okay, remember the title was Confronting Sin in a moral, Morally Relativistic World. And so we're going to deal with, with how do we deal with people who just have complete moral relativism. That is, what's right for me is right for me, what's right for you is right for you. There is no standard. There's no absolute standard. And that's what's going on today. And that is not new to this age. Please understand that. Even in the Roman period, there is an age of moral relativism. Now, the Roman Empire wasn't built on that. What was the Roman Empire built on? Virtues. Okay, they had the, the five virtues, seven virtues of the Roman Empire. And, and, and that was the foundation of this very powerful empire. And we would look at those virtues and, of integrity, things like, and we say, well, those are very honorable virtues. And yet, when we look at the demise and the disintegration of the Roman Empire, it went into complete moral relativism, where you just do whatever is right in your own eyes. Okay? And if you think that, that the church is, that doesn't happen to us, uh, well, remember that the people of God, called Israel, started out with a pretty high moral standard, right? Ten Commandments, the law. But what did they disintegrate into? Everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. That's the biblical phrase that he used. So we're not talking about something new, but we're talking about the pervasiveness of this across all of society, internationally, across the whole face of the earth. And so we're not talking about one people or one group or one era. We're saying that this is true throughout the earth. And we're seeing a lot of entities rise up against this moral relativism, uh, and they have different kinds of responses. I am convinced that most of what we're seeing in radical Islam is a reaction to moral relativism, because it undermines Islam. Radical Hinduism, how, how do you don't even know how you get to radical Hinduism when you think of what Hindus believe? How do you even get there where you become violently uh, attacking people? Well, I believe they're responding to moral, moral decay, moral relativism, uh, and the, the ones that have held to the old views. And that's true in, in all these different places where we have this moral decline, and that is happening all over the place, including in religious communities, including in our churches. So we're going to talk about one of the first steps of sharing the gospel with people is they have to recognize they have a need. They have, a, they have to know they have a spiritual need. And so what we are going to be talking about is sin. How do we communicate their, their spiritual need? Because their spiritual need is the fact that they are sinners separated from God. Right? That is the condition that Jesus is addressing. Well, if nothing I do is sin because I have truth to myself, do I have a need for a Savior? No, not at all. I don't believe I do anyway. Because I've redefined what is good or moral or upright. And so how do we address that? When that is pervasive, and I'm not seeing this just here, I'm seeing it all over the earth, that it's pervasive how this has swept through and in fact, in China right now, what is that movement? Um, 
there's a whole big movement in China right now of young people that just sit down and do nothing. That's their reaction to communism, is that they just sit and do nothing. And, and they don't work, they don't do anything, they just sit. And, and I think they don't have that many video games, so they're just sitting. Uh, our young people bought into that a while back too. So how do we come to them and in this nihilism, this belief in nothingness, really, uh, and in uh, humanism, that's the foundation of that, because uh, that, humanism always leads you to nihilism, it has to. If you believe in man, then you're going to be disappointed because man are going to let you down, and that leads you to believe in nothing. That's nihilism. And so how do we approach them with moral relativism that we decide what's right and wrong, not our parents, not, there's no moral code for the world. How do we come to them? So we're going to spend three weeks on this. And uh, tonight I want to distinguish between um, confronting sin, okay, convicting of sin, and judging sin. Okay, I think we need to understand the difference between these to know what is our role in this process of evangelism. Okay, and so we're going to look at a couple of examples out of God's Word, uh, and again, we're going to be deriving more from that than a directive text. But uh, let's start where we have a, a good, strong knowledge. Uh, whose work is it to convict of sin? All right, so this is the Holy Spirit's job, okay? And let's talk about what does it mean to convict someone of their sin. And I'm going to give you uh, uh, my definition uh, that I want, to, uh, a working definition for us tonight. And that is I'm going to consider convicting of sin to be the awakening the conscience to produce guiltiness. Okay, awakening the conscience uh, and the production, the, the, what we were trying to produce, what the Holy Spirit's conviction should produce in the individual is called godly sorrow. Or, if not godly sorrow, that would be a proper, there is sorrow, whether it's recognized or not. Godly sorrow that leads to repentance, right, is what the verse says. Um, but at least what I use tonight is guiltiness. We should feel guilty that that's part of the Holy Spirit. He can awaken our conscience and go beyond that so that we say, I'm doing wrong. I am, in a, in, I am not in fellowship with God. Now, the, what scripture reference do we use here? Of the Holy Spirit convicting the world? Gospel of John? Do you know? 16? 14, 15, somewhere in there? Oh, let's look it up. I thought you guys just have that one on the tip of your tongues here. Since this is one-third of the material tonight. John 15. No, 16. 16, 5, we'll start off. No, we'll go on to 8, that's fine. Well, we got back up to six. It says, nevertheless, I tell you, seven, the, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is for, to your advantage I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And he says three things. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So they need to be convicted of three things. We're just talking about the first thing, but it is correlated to the other two things. So we are to be convicted of sin. And this is John 16, 7, and 8. So we want them convicted of their sin because they don't believe in him. All right, so everyone, we know that the Bible says all of sin falls short of the glory of God, and we're going to talk about that. But the, ultimately, it is not your job or my job to convict someone else of their sin. I am not trying to produce in them godly sorrow. I am not trying to do the Holy Spirit's work. 
I'm not trying to make them sorry. That is conviction. I pray to the Holy Spirit to do that work. God is faithful. He will do this work. But not only do they need to know that they are sinners, they also need to know that God is what? Righteous, that he is holy. Part of the convicting work is this is sin, this is righteousness. You're the sinner, God is holy. Which means they have to be rec- they have to recognize the disparity between them and God. Okay? So they need to be convicted of that, but they also need to be convicted of just how holy, holy, holy God Almighty is. Again, I can't convict them of that. And they have to be convicted of the fact that there is a judgment to come. And, that, and a conviction is, a, is awakening of our conscience that we are deep penetration of that truth. And so we rely upon the Holy Spirit and, and we ask him to do that work. We ask him to go before us to convict them. We ask them after we are done in that conversation to convict them. Do not leave it alone in their mind and in their heart. This is the primary, in fact, the only work of the Holy Spirit toward the unbeliever is conviction. This is his work. That means that there's some other work that isn't going on because conviction is his work towards the unbeliever. So what it is not happening then that we enjoy as those that have the Holy Spirit residing in us. What do we enjoy the Holy Spirit that they don't? He's our comforter, helper. What else? Very critical in this process. Say it again. Yes, well, he has groanings that cannot be uttered. He, he prays in our stead. He is also our illuminator, Right? That's why we pray and ask for God's help. And when we go into God's word, and we, because we're relying upon the Holy Spirit to open up his word to our mind and to our heart. And that's not something that they have. And so you'll see people say, oh, it's all boring and confusing to me, and I don't understand anything in the Bible. Well, I immediately know their spiritual condition. Whether they go to church all the time or not, if the Bible is boring and doesn't mean anything to you, then I know your spiritual condition. Because Holy Spirit, if he is there, is quenched by your unbelief and sin. If he, and, and if he's not there, you don't have that illumination. And so these words just don't make sense. Even the apostles, remember, walked with Jesus for three years. Did they get what they were taught? Did they understand it? Not until the Holy Spirit came upon them. Now, Jesus gave them a temporal, uh, a temporary fix after the resurrection. It says he breathed on them so that they would understand. Uh, and that's at the end of Luke. But then we have the coming of the Holy Spirit in, in chapter 2. And now we have a permanent state of having understanding of the scriptures. These things all make sense to us with his help. But the unbeliever doesn't have that help. What help they have is he is there convicting. He is awakening their conscience to their sin, God's holiness, and that he is going to judge them. All right, what kind of things prevent the Holy Spirit's activity of convicting in people? How can people uh, quench that or, or ignore that? What kind of activities keep that from happening? Because the Holy Spirit is personal being in a relationship. And obviously from Romans 1 and other passages, there comes a point where God gives them up, right? Gives them over. So what kind of activities would inhibit the convicting work of the Holy Spirit? Among the lost. All right, they're going to persist in it. All right, you guys remember, oh, <laughs> like you were in the class with me. Um, when I was a sixth grader, my sixth grade public school teacher did this. This is your conscience. Did your sixth grade public school teacher tell you that? And every time you do wrong, one of these points st- sticks you. 
and you know you did wrong. But something happens every time you violate. It's, you're knocking off that corner and making it a little bit smoother. And a little, pretty soon you wear it out, and pretty soon it's a circle. And then it doesn't bother you to do evil at all. That's a sixth grade public school teacher. What was she teaching us? What was she teaching us about? Your conscience, how it works. That guilt, feeling bad, is a really good thing. It means your conscience is intact. But if you keep violating that, pretty soon you don't get all those jabs and pretty soon it's a circle. And now you don't feel guilt. And so it is by persisting in sin and by you can push it away. You can diminish that work. And so this process isn't a guaranteed outcome, is it? Because who does the Holy Spirit convict? According to the verse. Who does he convict? The world. So if the Holy Spirit is the X in the equation, the unknown variable, and whatever, and if he comes on, then it has to produce this equal sign to a conversion experience, then everyone who is convicted will get saved, and that's just not the case. So people can resist the Holy Spirit, and in fact, they can blaspheme him, right? Jesus Christ warned the religious leaders about that. They can oppose him. If they can oppose him, can they oppose you? Can they oppose the truth? Yes, certainly. And in fact, that's what we're encountering. And so we don't want sorrow. These two things, even in the Christian community, have, have some bad press, right? You shouldn't be sorrowful and you shouldn't feel guilty. I had one guy when I was a pastor at Charity, maybe it's because I was a young pastor that people felt they could do this to me back then. I don't get it so much uh, here of late. Um, uh, either, that, either I just don't tolerate it and I don't let them ever get to that point. But he said, oh, you make people feel guilty and that's wrong. And he was, he was there to be a helper to people and he had a little business card, retired guy, and he knew all the answers and he was going to straighten me out and say, oh, you, you, you can't use guilt. And I was like, oh, yes, I can. And because the Bible does. I says, without guilt, we have no hope. Because that's my conscience telling me I'm wrong and God is right. And so guilt is like pain. And of course, godly sorrow we see immediately. And so what we do? Well, someone's sorrowful. What do you do? What do we do in our society if you're sorrowful? Drugs and alcohol. Drugs and alcohol. You're not allowed to be sorrowful. Do drugs and alcohol help? No, they make it worse. And I'm not just talking about uh, illegal drugs. I'm talking about psychiatric drugs. What do they ask you every doctor's appointment you go to? Are you depressed? Have you been depressed lately? Yes, do you have thoughts and feelings to harm yourself? What are they asking you? Are you sorrowful? Do you have these negative feelings? Because we can eradicate them with prescriptions. And that's why I always give a very firm answer, never. And yes, I have the same nurse for my doctor for 30 years, and she just looks at me and says, I know what your answer is going to be. Because I am emphatic when she asks me that question. But she has to ask me that question every hospital visit, every doctor's office visit. And I say, never, ever, ever. That's emphatic. Okay? None of those. Never. Now, does that mean I'm never sad or sorrowful? <laughs> but I, don't confuse sorrow with depression. Okay? But depression is sorrow unrepented. Godly sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance leads to depression. 
If you don't repent, you'll be like Cain. Cain, right? Killed his brother. Did he ever repent? He got the mark of God on him. He was downcast in his spirit. And God says, why are you downcast in your spirit? And instead of repenting and turning to God, he became downcast in his spirit. Okay? Now, a lot of people, in fact, some people aren't part of this church today because of my position on that, and that's okay for me. It's not okay for them, but it's okay for me um, because I have a very powerful biblical position here. Okay? So how you respond to godly sorrow is critical. So, But we rely upon the Holy Spirit to produce that in people. But what I want to communicate to you is they can resist that, they can resist the rest. Now, our responsibility is to confront them with something. Confrontation is not convicting. Okay? We have conviction. My working definition right now is to awaken the conscience to produce guiltiness. Confronting is to inform the mind of what sin is and its penalty. To inform. And so confronting sin is coming to someone and informing them that what sin is and that it has consequences. Now, I had an opportunity to do that this week. Um, and I had a young lady, and the problem is I can't confront very well because if there's alcohol involved, it's clouding their mind and I don't know if anything sticks at all, but I lay it on them, I lay it on them heavy, and I'll just sit there and say, well, you, you know, you, you disrespect me, you disrespect your parents, you, know, you're, you use the word, oh, I respect you, I respect you, I said, but there's nothing in your behavior or speech that is respectful. So you use a word, you don't even understand this meaning, and you violate it continuously. And I just go right through, you know, we can talk about drunken, and, and every moral sin wasn't a sin for her. Okay? It doesn't matter, homosexuality, nothing was a sin for her. Okay? This is how do we deal with this? Well, in the confrontation of the gospel, let's look at it. Let's go to Luke chapter 5. I told you I was going to give some examples. Let's go to Luke 5 and look at this confrontation. All right, where do I want to pick up here? I wrote it down. Let's start at verse 20. It says, when he saw their faith, this is Jesus regarding the people that came through the roof with uh, the paralytic man. When he saw their faith, he said to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things today. So we have this encounter, and the question is over forgiveness of sins. So what is the premise, what is the understanding of the intellect behind this conversation? Anybody? The religious leaders observing the conversation where Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, go, what? He can't forgive sins. Who does he think he is? And Jesus is talking about how does sins be forgiven. And so, because they couldn't engage in that reasoning, do you see how many times it talks about their thoughts and reasoning, and they're trying to figure out how do we deal with sin. And Jesus just says, well, maybe it's easier for you in this 
thing to just think of, if you think he's paralyzed because he's a sinner, I've just forgiven him of sin, but he's still paralyzed. So to prove my point, I'll get up and walk. How about I just heal him instead of forgive his sins? Because you've connected his paralytic state to his sin, but Jesus Christ did not. So how did Jesus approach this man? He approached him saying, your great need is not to be healed of being paralyzed. Your greatest need is for your sins to be forgiven. And you have the faith to accomplish that. And it's evidence to me that you have that. Now let's go a little bit further on. Let's go to Luke chapter 7. Just a couple of pages. Beginning verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with them. He went to the Pharisee's house, sat down to eat. Behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what man or woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50, and when they had nothing with which to repay, freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, "Go, or your faith has saved you, go in peace. Now, very powerful events, right? This is what, how we want to engage sinners, right? They come to you knowing they're sinners. But that's not why I'm using these two texts. It's not the paralytic man and it's not the woman that we're studying tonight. Who are we studying? The people who are resisting and questioning and being engaged by Jesus about what it takes to get your sins forgiven. Because none of them thought they were sinners. Right? That man's a sinner because he's paralyzed and God paralyzed him for some sin of either him or his father, parent, or his parent, mother. Uh, there's some reason he's paralyzed. This woman is obviously a sinner. She's probably a known prostitute or something. She's a known sinner. And they get saved. They, they're easy because they know they're sinners. We're not talking about those people. You can confront them. They'll usually confront you with their sin. Because they know they're sinners. And that's pretty easy to share the gospel with them because you, go, you, you don't spend much time right here. You spend almost no time here because they know they're a sinner. That's why prison ministry is so effectual. They know they're guilty. <laughs> that's why they're there. When I catch somebody in sin, it is the best time because they're broken and they know they've done wrong. And now I can go very quickly past this step because this step's already been established, you're a sinner, and I can move into the next steps of the gospel and talk about the sacrifice of Jesus to forgive you of your sins. And that's how Jesus deals with people who say, I know I'm a sinner, and I'm just weeping before you. I am coming before you knowing that you're the only answer I have, and they've already acknowledged their need. Those are the easy ones. That's not what this study is about. The study is about the other people in these stories that think they don't have the need that these other people have. How does Jesus engage them? 
How does he confront them with the fact that they are sinners? And here in this parable, or this account, this story that Jesus uses with him, he says, listen, does he confront them with the fact that all are sinners? How does he do that? Well, Jesus doesn't quote that because it hasn't been written yet. So how does he do it in this, in this environment? How does he confront the ones who don't know they're sinners with the fact that they are sinners? All right, he takes them on a journey, and he says, um, all of you have a debt, some more than others, but you all have a debt, right? Doesn't he make that? In the, in the, you have two people, one with a great debt, one with a small debt. Who's the person with the small debt? With less sin. It is Simon here in Luke chapter 7. Simon is the one. It's the religious leaders say, who are you to, to, to forgive sins, to say you forgive sins? They're the ones who think they don't have sin or they have less sin. I don't think any of them would claim to be sinless, but they claim to have less sin, right? That's who Jesus is targeting. And so he is confronting with the, all our sinners um, that, listen, she's a bad sinner, but you're a sinner too. You both need forgiveness. Um, who's going to be more thankful? Well, the person who's going to be forgiven more sin. And that's why this is going to become a wonderful follower of mine, and you are going to resist it. You're not going to become a follower of mine. As long as you stay in this attitude that you, don't, that you don't have sin that needs to be fixed, that needs to be forgiven. Did Simon ask for forgiveness here? No. Did the religious leaders ask for forgiveness? Did they seek him out? Did they, did they weep before him over, with godly sorrow? No. But they're being confronted with a truth, and that truth is that all are sinners. Now, how can we use this example in bringing people to a knowledge of their own sin in our society today of moral relativism? Well, how do people feel about being sinned against? Oh, boy, do they know when they've been sinned against? When they have been cheated, lied to, right? Boy, that's, that's not right. That's not fair. When they've been maltreated, do they know it? Um, they know it even when it's not. They, they think they've been maltreated. If things didn't go their way, they think that life isn't fair. Uh, and so they, these are instances that are so important in leading them into a knowledge of sin. We're confronting them with sin. So I love getting people to talk about what, have people sinned against you? Have people done evil to you? Have people maltreated you? Now, what have I just invited them to do? What are they going to start into? Come on. They're going to recount the people lying to me. Oh, that dirty, rotten ex-husband of mine, and he cheated on me, and blah, 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 and this and that. And my employer is, you know, I love it when they complain about their employer to me. I said, oh, it sounds like you're being really maltreated here. Oh, yeah, they don't know. And I just let them go on and on and on. And why? Because now I can use that information. What have they just communicated to you is a moral code. Exactly. Now we have a basis for something that's wrong. And it's personal to them because it's a wrong against them. We're making, we're, we're coming, we're coming at the world from where the world is. We have devised a world where everyone's a victim. So I'm going to start with their victimization. How do you feel victimized? Oh, and they'll complain about, you know, oh, I've been, you know, you know, whatever. They'll go on and on. Um, you know, they'll, they'll claim victimhood for slavery, you know, because my people were slaves. And, and they'll claim victory, you know, uh, the native people, you know, we were chased out. I was like, yeah. But I'll let them go. And I'll say, oh, tell me about that. Oh, what kind of things happened to you that, that, 
that are wrong. And now we have a moral code from their words. Correct? They're saying these things are wrong. And now I have a list. And now how quickly can I turn that on them? Have you ever done that to anyone else? You don't lie? Do you cheat people? How do you treat others? Maybe I've even caught them doing the same thing to others. In fact, this past week, <clears throat> I had an engagement with um, Keith at uh, Pueblo Foods. And you pray for Keith. He is one of my guys on my list. Hopefully you all have your list to turn into me on writing of three names, one to three names for us to pray for. Keith is one of mine. And so uh, Keith is a Muslim and proclaimed that to me uh, when I invited him here for New Year's Eve. And he couldn't eat pork because he's a Muslim since he was eight. And so um, I'm just engaging. Well, he had an accident. He said something. And I was like, oh, is that what happened? He says, well, no, but it got me out of a ticket. I was like, you lied? And he just kind of looked at me and he knew he lied. He admitted it. But it worked. It got me out of a ticket. I was like, oh, do you like being lied to? So now we have moral relativism, and this is a man who claims to be a Muslim. Okay, so I have moral relativism now, but he knows it's wrong, but he's admitted he's done that, and now I have an opportunity to nail him to the wall that everyone's a sinner. And your, and your Muslim faith is not making you do righteousness. Okay? Are you sorry for it? He's not even sorry for it, because it helped him not get a ticket and helped him with the insurance claim. Okay? So there's no godly sorrow, so now I have to confront him with that as a sin. Um, so that's kind of the opposite way, but every time we have an opportunity to engage people over sin, we need to have an to define sin. What is it? And we have several ways to do that. What is right? What is just? What is pure and good? What is pure? What is good? And people, even in a morally relativistic world, still have some concept of right and wrong based upon what makes them feel bad when they are the victims of it. And I, and I start there. Jesus Christ is starting here with where they're at, and he's basically saying, well, yeah, these people are horrible sinners, but so are you. You might have less sin, but they're here weeping over their sin, they're going to be forgiving, and they're going to serve me faithfully, and to whom much is forgiven, much... What does it say? There's going to be much love. So she's going to serve me in love. Uh, what about you? You know, you, don't, you, don't, you haven't done as many bad things, but what about you? Well, are you forgiven, even? You're not even seeking it. And so when we come to the understanding, we think, well, what I have to do is pound them with Bible verses over every sin. Well, I don't have to do that. I can just sit there and wait for them to complain about people sinning against them, and then I can use their moral code. Any moral code will always lead you to this conclusion that everyone's a sinner. True? Because if you don't like being lied to, and I tell people that, do you like being lied to? No, I hate being lied to. I was like, oh, so you don't want me to lie to you? No. Okay, from now on, I'm not going to lie to you. And I had that conversation right here. Andrea was there listening. <laughs> I'm like, and, and this gal was just breaking down, but the alcohol is a problem, and that's why I, don't, I just try to put the seeds there and hope that when they sober up that their mind might remember some of what they've heard in that environment. I pray for that. And so we just put it out there. Well, I'm going to tell you the truth. The truth is, is and, and I was hard. I mean, I was harsh on her. I mean, I called her a coward. I called her disrespectful. I called her a liar. I called her immoral. I, I, I just, because that's what she was. She acknowledged it. She was testing those waters. I said, well, you've already conceded sin on your moral code. And now they want to try to squirm their way out of it. I want them to be in that condition of squirming. Why? Because that's an informed conscience. 
Many of these people have never even thought about it. And so we confront them with all our sins. We're going to come back to this next week. My time is pretty much up. We're going to keep coming back and inform them of their sin. And so we don't have to use, we can, we're going to talk about using the law next week a lot, um, about using God's moral code. And that's, but I found that a lot of people don't even acknowledge it. Oh, that's just for, you know, and they blow off the Ten Commandments. And that's the Living Waters ministry really focuses on, we're going to start with the Ten Commandments and, and okay, you're guilty before God of breaking, you know, this many of the commandments because you're lying, cheating, uh, adulterous person. And so lying, stealing, blasphemous, adulterous person. And so you, would you be found guilty or innocent in the courtroom of God? And that works if they acknowledge that moral code, right? But it's amazing how many people he engages with that don't acknowledge that as a moral code that's relevant to them because we have moral relativism. My contention is that we can use the law of their own conscience and use their own moral code to define sin. How many sins do you have to define to be guilty? How many? One. One. And so I let them say, oh, you think that's wrong? Is that wrong um, for your employer, for the government to, to take some of your wages and misuse it and waste it? Oh, yeah, oh, we can complain about taxes. I was like, oh, do you rob from your employer by cheating him on your time spent working, on your time card, on your effort? I mean, you're lying to police to get out of an insurance claim, So you don't want to be maltreated, and yet, and so we have a moral code now. Don't treat me bad. Well, but you're treating others like that. So you're guilty. And we are informing the conscience. We are causing it to turn. Now, can I keep harping on that and bring guilt? No, I don't need to. I just have to get them thinking about the fact that they violate their own moral code, even as relativistic as it is. Right? But they excuse themselves from it, even while they condemn others for it. And that's a different problem. But we're just trying to inform their conscience. We're not trying to awaken their conscience. We're trying to inform it. This is a mental activity of getting them to think about, well, you do bad things too. We all do. And I'm willing to put myself in the camp and say, oh, I've done evil things. And you know, I've had regularly, oh, no, not you. I was like, you have no idea. Okay? So we put ourselves there. We're going to talk about using our testimony in two or three weeks. We're going to be talking two weeks. We're going to talk about our testimony, our example, and we're going to use it out of Ephesians and Timothy. How we use ourselves to inform and confront. But so we're using um, any moral code, even their own, of what is fair, what is good what is just, what is pure. These are very important words. Because remember, we're, we're trying to work with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's going to convict them of sin, but he's also going to convict them of righteousness. So we want to talk about, well, what is right? Okay, and I don't even use the word right there. Because... If I go to the word concept of right and wrong right away, they usually back off. But I talk about, you know, is that fair? Is that good? Is that good what you're doing? Do you think that's good how these people are being treated? Is it just? That a concept of fairness and justice, is it pure? And I can even use the word right at some point if I develop a relationship with them. What is right? Is that right? I once sat in a line and somebody came in and cut right in front of me, which is a really big mistake because I'm like, and so he just sat there and was laughing. I was like, hey, is it right? He just turned around and looked at me and I said, you know what you're doing. Is it right? 
And he puts his head down. He looks around. And, and I said, you know it's not right. Everyone here knows it's not right. You're not more important than everyone behind you that you just got in front of. Is it right? And all I'm trying to do is inform his conscience. I'm not trying to awaken. I'm just asking him, what's your moral code? Do you have one? Everyone has one when it comes to themselves. And so it's okay to approach sin in a morally relativistic world because they do have some moral code as applies to them. We want to inform them that, yes, all these people are doing evil against you, and that's wrong. That's not fair. That's not just. And, boy, I, I, you know, that's really bad. You know, your boss is... is you know, taking advantage of you. They're, oh, yes, oh, oh, oh. I said, and then, but turn it around, say, but what about, what about, what about you doing the same thing to others? Now, they've already confessed this as a moral right, as a moral good, or actually the sin as a moral evil, it's evil to lie to me, then I have an opportunity to say, well, but you're a liar. And you've already acknowledged that being lied to is not something that's right. And so you don't like it, you don't want it to happen, you hate people lying to you, but you lie. Now, is this the end point? Probably not. But we're trying to initiate the conversation over moral, what is sin? And if they don't acknowledge God in their hearts and minds, if they do not have a moral code that, uh, that is divinely originated, the Ten Commandments, the law, which we're going to, the law is valuable, we're going to get to that, I want to start with their moral position. Where are you at? What's right? Oh, you think Native Americans have been maltreated in this country? Oh, well, let's start there. Well, let's talk about how you treated each other before we ever got here. How you treat each other today. How you treat each other. How do you treat other native peoples? Oh, we don't want to look at that, right? Well, we're turning their attention to their own sin. Okay? Did Jesus do this with the woman at the well? That was my other example. How did he do it? Yeah, isn't that an interesting concept? He doesn't say, oh, you're a woman of sin. He says, go get your husband. That's a, that's a pretty upfront, he's a Jewish man at a public place, a well. He's having an engagement with this woman. And it's appropriate that he asks, go get your husband and we'll continue this conversation, religious conversation of where we should worship and things like that. Go get your husband. And she lies, says, I don't have a husband. He says, well, that's kind of the truth. It's a half-truth. And then he tells her that, and it is that smack in the face that suddenly changes the whole approach that while we can have religious debate over where you should worship, and, and I can debate you over being a Muslim versus me being a Christian or a Hindu, um, ultimately it comes down to you've acknowledged that you're a liar in your Islam. And I condemn lying. And if I do lie, I am sorrowful for it. You are rejoicing and even reporting it to me as something wonderful you got away with. Okay, so I have an opportunity. So Jesus Christ takes this opportunity to, to turn it from a religious debate to, let's talk about your sin. Which one was effectual? The religious debate wasn't going anywhere, was it? But once we start talking about her sin, she is, whoa. Now he knows my sin, and now this is someone I have to reckon with. And she goes into town. What does she tell him? Come here, listen to some guy that's got all this religious information. What does she tell everybody? Come listen to the man who told me what my sins were. That's how she defined Jesus to her neighbors. 
Is that how your coworkers and relatives and friends describe you? Come listen to this guy who will confront you with sin in a weird way. It makes you feel, I don't make them feel guilty. I just inform them and then I ask the Holy Spirit to make them feel guilty. <laughs> Wake in their conscience to bring godly sorrow. I can't make them sorry for their sin, but I can make them knowledgeable of their sin. What you have done, what you feel how you've been wronged is how you've wronged others, and I'll just use your moral code against you yourself. I don't have to prove God's moral code, but I will move there very quickly once they start trying to squirm out of their own statements. Now, now they're acknowledging relativism, and that's when I go to absolutism. But I start where they are at. That's what Jesus did. I'm going to start with your hat. She wants to go into a religious discussion. No, let's just go into this other area. Let's talk about your sin. And I'll just do it in a, in a non-aggressive, non-accusative way. Bring me your husband. Go eat your husband. You know people's sin. The people that you are engaging in the gospel, and sometimes you're catching them in the very act of sin. How do you address it? Do you laugh at it? Do you shrug it off? No, when you see someone cheating, when you see someone lying, when you know that they're doing this, this is your chance to begin the gospel message. Hey, do you think that's right? Do you think that's honest? Would you like that to be done to you? That's such a powerful way to begin. We're not judging, and we're going to talk about that. I'm supposed to get that tiny time, but I didn't get to it. But uh, we are just confronting and we're trying to get their mind to think about them, their own actions and their condition so that the Holy Spirit can then awaken their conscience and so then they can realize there's a penalty here that should be enforced. Okay? Hopefully this was helpful material. And we have, I have several other passages we didn't get to, but... Um, we want to keep confronting people. You have to start with their need. You can't just jump in and say, Jesus loves you. Um, so what? Um, we need to do where, where Jesus says, listen, you're a sinner. She's a sinner. She's a more of a sinner, but you're still a sinner. Uh, she's going to get forgiven. You haven't been forgiven. You're in trouble. And that's uh, how he confronts these people who claim self-righteousness I don't even think we're in a self-righteous world. We are in relativistic world. And that you have to establish a moral code with them. And the best way I know of is to have them be the victims. Because they, they know how to be victims, don't they? The millennials, they know how to be victims. We've trained them in victimhood. Whether it be because of your skin color, because of your economic position, because of your gender, we've trained them to be victims. And so I just take that and turn it on them. Let them tell me about how they've been victimized. And then I say, well, you've been doing that here, there, wherever I've seen it. Okay? All right, we'll keep the study up. Um, please give me your names. If you don't have them, please get them to me. I need your name and one to three names and how you're related so we can put that. We're going to put together a prayer sheet with us information, and we want to update that uh, from time to time. Um, but I need to have a starting point. So if you could please give me those, and I'll hopefully print that up and have it for you by next Sunday morning. But I need information. We can add to that if we, I don't get it, but please give that to me. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this time in your word. We pray that you might just continue to give us opportunities to share the gospel. And we see a world that doesn't want to acknowledge their sin. And this is nothing new. All the way back to Cain. And so, Lord, we pray that certainly you would convict them of their sin and of your righteousness and of the judgment to come. But, Lord, give us a boldness and an understanding of our world and their mindset that we might confront them with their sin, uh, that they would acknowledge a sin and knowing that that is sufficient to begin with, to begin to awaken their ideas and thoughts about right and wrong and about where they stand before you. 
Lord, that we might bring them to understand judgment and uh, that they might see the penalty of sin, that they might seek to avoid that. Lord, we cannot produce that sorrow in them. We pray you might bring them to that point, and we know that even then, that that doesn't have to lead to repentance if they resist that. So, Lord, we pray that you might continue in, these, in this day of salvation, in these last days of this age, that uh, you might work mightily in the hearts of people as we engage their minds with your truth. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.